Yeah, the world waited for John King's magic iPad to update. <laughs> yeah, I think so. World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This weekend brought the news that for only the fourth time in its history, America chose to not re-elect a sitting president. The election of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. draws to an end the presidency of Donald Trump. And yet Donald Trump may be defeated, but the complex world which gave birth to his presidency and the issues he faced continue. In future episodes, ahead of President-elect Biden's inauguration, we'll be exploring just some of the issues the new president will face, be it climate change, COVID-19 or inequality. To stay up to date about these upcoming episodes, as well as news and events, you can sign up to our newsletter at www.kcl.ac.uk forward slash SGA. In today's episode, we discuss the threats faced by minority communities within India. Our guest is Sudhir Salaraja, a PhD candidate at the Indian Institute here at King's College London. His research focuses on violence against Christians in India, and as well as being a researcher, he's also a playwright. We discuss the ideas raised by a spoken word piece that Sudhir wrote and produced on the 2008 Kandamal violence. The incident refers to the violence which took place towards the Christian minority in the Kandamal district within the eastern coastal state of Orissa. Unfortunately, as you'll hear during the recording, my connection wasn't so good, and so the sound quality on my side is a little poor, but we felt it an important conversation to bring to you. Finally, as always, please do rate and review us. It helps us reach more people. And so, on to today's episode. Today, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Good to be here. So, I mean, each episode we discuss global issues by talking about perhaps a piece of writing or a piece of research that our guest has produced. But in your case, it's actually an audio project that you worked and produced called Homeland. The work focuses on an eastern state in India called Orissa. Can you tell us a little bit more about the state and what happened there in 2008? Yeah, so the piece is a 15-minute audio piece, and it tells the story of the Kandamal violence. Kandamal is a district in Orissa, which was the epicenter of the violence. Uh, It focuses on four victims' voices of the violence to tell the story from the ground upwards. Before I even get to Orissa, it's also important to know that Hindu-Muslim violence is a dominant story when you talk about religious violence in India. Christians oftentimes are ignored. And this is for good reason. There's a longer history of Hindu-Muslim violence. It seems to bring out a lot more of the passions uh, and aggression when you're thinking about violence. Uh, But increasingly so, from the late 1990s, Christians have become the targets of this violence. Uh, There is no greater example of this than 2008 in Orissa and Kandamal specifically. I traveled there in 2018, and this violence was largely between the tribal groups and the Dalit Christian groups there. But this was largely spurred on by Hindu nationalist organizations who had been working in the area for the past few decades. So their work would be including uh, speeches talking about how Christians are trying to ruin the integrity of the nation, uh, distributing pamphlets saying conversions are what's ruining us and destroying us and things like that. So it was largely spurring on this atmosphere of hatred in the area. Uh, And then in 2008, it manifested into large-scale violence 
um, this violence, there's a lot of estimates going around, but it's generally uh, estimated to believe that there are about 75 to 125 people killed and there were 18,000 injuries. But most importantly, there are between 25,000 and 40,000 people displaced. So when I visited Kandamal in 2018 for this research, uh, you could actually see this. You could still see burnt structures. You can They showed us places where used to be small churches, not nothing grand by any means, but it was completely destroyed to rubble. The area, generally speaking, is a very poorer, underdeveloped area, lodged away in this beautifully scenic uh, place. I was struck by the beauty of Kandamal. But then, as I stood there, I, just, I realized 10 years earlier, this was a scene of the worst instance of violence against Christians the country had ever witnessed. And the four people we hear from in the recording, uh, they are voiced by actors. But how important was it that you told their stories? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, James. So I just explain a little bit about the process of the podcast, because this is a very, I think, a very fascinating idea. Uh, so I write plays on conflicts and largely conflicts based in South Asia. My goal this year was now that the play was written, was to produce it in different parts of the world. Uh, much like all of us, my plans uh, did not materialize in 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, so when the lockdown first happened, I gathered together a, stu- a group of students from King's, from the School of Global Affairs, and asked them if they would be interested in voicing uh, some of these characters. So ideally, this was meant to be a stage production, but we had to rewrite it with the actors and with an editor to say, how do we bring this into an audio piece? So the narrative was changed completely from play structure to a podcast structure, but the stories are still are the same. Uh, and I think that's why it's important for me. The focus is always on stories. Most times when you get these reports, and I know I'm guilty of it just now by telling you the number of people who died and were displaced and such. We oftentimes tend to blow it up into numbers, but not talk about the people itself. So this was what was important to me to make sure that uh, different people's stories were voiced in this. And once you listen to the podcast, you can tell there's one person who was displaced by the violence, one person whose partner was murdered by the rioters, another person who saved some of the Christians' lives. Uh, They tell stories of the violence from different perspectives to make sure we get a complete perspective of it. Uh, But for me, the stories are what the main impact is, and that's why it's really important to tell them. One of the things you begin with in the recording and uh, in the piece is to ask that simple question, what is home? It gets you thinking about In modern India, are we witnessing a kind of fundamental clash in how people answer that question of what is home? Um, Yeah, so to understand why I picked the question, uh, it's two stories. So first, my first play was actually written on the Bhopal gas tragedy, the 1984 Bhopal gas tragedy. Um, So this was effectively the Chernobyl of uh, South Asia uh, and led to people, even third generations, being impacted by being born with cancers. Um, The story is a 30-year struggle of justice. So I interviewed people uh, from activists to victims and some people in some cases who were both victims turned activists. Uh, For that play, the concept was hope. So what keeps you going? Why do you keep fighting? Why do you hope for justice? Uh, And that was the themes I explored in that first play. Coming here, for me, when I walked around Kandamal and the conversations I had, the question was on home. What is home for you? Uh, And it's oftentimes a notion of saying, where's your comfort zone? Uh, It was very much my own positionality of thinking, me as a urban, middle-class Christian from India, 
going to another part of India, going to a part of the country I didn't know. And then we often talk about communities. So is being Christian what binds us? Is being Indian what binds us? And things like that. So those are the questions that were really running through my head. But to answer your question more directly, James, Hindutva ideology, which I contend in my own research, uh, is responsible for both physical and structural violence against Christians in India. The ideology in brief started in 1923 with the works of uh, Sarvarkar. Uh, and his understanding of uh, home is India as a physical boundary, but it was home to Indic religions. So it was Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, uh, and Jainism. For them and for this conception, Muslims and Christians were considered foreigners. So you were foreign to the idea of the Hindu nation. So not only did you not belong, but you were also an externality. As the ideology has evolved later on and in the writings of Kulwakar, who was a leader of the RSS, Christians and Muslims were not only considered as foreign, but they were considered as enemies. So enemies who are trying to ruin your home, to break away the integrity of this. And this was largely done for Christians through the ideas of conversions. So conversions pose a threat in multiple ways. But one is they believed it was a tool of foreign aggressors trying to break apart India. And this was written, keep in mind, in the 20s and from the 20s to the 60s during independence and things like that. So the goal or the perceived goal was foreigners were trying to break apart India and they do this through conversion. Uh, But most specifically, it, it was targeting the Hindu majority because their perceived understanding was Christians conversions was largely targeting Dalits and tribals. So Dalits are the lowest rung of the caste system and tribals were those who are considered within Hinduism, but wouldn't be considered Hindus. But keeping those two groups is important to maintain the Hindu majority. So if Dalits and tribals are particularly vulnerable to being lost to Christian conversions, they realize that that they, they portrayed Christian conversions as a threat. And this is the understanding that is percolated downwards continuously in India. Uh, where Christians and Muslims are both foreigners and trying to ruin the integrity of the nation. And therefore, it cannot be whole. This is a really important piece and part of, of the podcast that you've released and, and from the writing. So it's actually how others answer the question, what is home, that really threatens the minority. Yes, very much. And we have to remember, too, that India, in the way it was set up with the constitution in 1950, is a, well, I mean, a lot of people see it from the 70s when the word secular was actually inserted in the constitution. But others will argue that the spirit of the constitution was that India is a secular country. Indian secularism is slightly different from other versions of secularism that we might be familiar with, in such that, in theory at least, it's the state is meant to be equidistant from other religions. So not so much of a direct split as the American version would be. Uh, but one of the aspects of Indian secularism is Article 25 of the Constitution, which allows you to practice uh, your freedom of religion. Now, freedom of religion in India is hampered, I argue, for Christians, uh, either by physical violence, but also by structural violence. And structural violence happens in the form of, let's take, for example, the anti-conversion laws. So these are officially titled the freedom of religion laws, but they have been, they've taken on the role of saying anti-conversion laws because effectively they act as a hindrance for transfer of faith from Hinduism effectively, but towards Christianity. And and you point out that India is the birthplace of four different religions um, mm-hmm. and in its formation, it set out uh, to keep the government secular. How strained is that concept of separation of religion and state in modern India? Yeah, so... 
it's interesting because Indian secularism is in a crisis point, I'd argue. Uh, but this is definitely not the first time it's been at a crisis point. Uh, there have been books written starting off with the 80s, uh, which led into the 90s, which was the demolition of the Babri Masjid. So the Indian state taking sides of others. Uh, Hindu nationalist parties and Hindu nationalist organizations will frequently levy a charge against um, the Indian National Congress, which is perceived as a secular party, uh, for arguing, uh, saying that they are placating minorities. They are pseudo-secularists. So the, the debate goes on both sides, where one group says we should be more towards a Hindu state. Others will say, oh, you can't support minorities because that is also a violation of Indian secularism. So it's a very tricky uh, situation on those grounds. Uh, from the late 90s onwards is when violence against Christians started. And I argue that's a big turning point because Christians have always seemed to be the next best target to impose violence. So violence does pay uh, election dividends in India. And in 2008 and in the late 19, uh, in the late 1990s, both times it was a change from where the violence was against Muslims uh, shifted the patterns towards Christians to maintain that atmosphere, to maintain that fear that we are under threat, we are uh, being challenged. But how do we make elevate the risk uh, analysis and impose the risk of the other? Uh, is the is what we are arguing. So very early on, you speak about the work of Saravaka, who set out a form of Hindu nationalism back in the 1920s. I mean, how essential are these early writings to understanding contemporary violence against Christians in India? So when you read Hindu nationalists' writings and speeches, themes seem to be consistent, but always the writings have been influenced by political events. So, for example, the term Hindutva, even though it came about in the 20s with writings of Sarvarkar, the notions of it existed from the late 1800s. So those notions were that Christian missionaries were coming in and changing the culture of the country, were taking away from the Hindu population. So in the early 1990s, with the first uh, census being reported, for the first time, it was quantified. It was quantified how many Hindus are being lost to Islam and Christianity. And that's what spurred a lot of these things. So Sarvaka was the one who effectively brought a lot of this together into one piece of writing. Now, Sarvakar, while he is not a member of the Rashtra Swayam Sevak Sangh, the RSS, he was the inspiration for it. So the organization as such takes on Sarvakar's writings, but it has continued to develop over the years. But particularly with reference to what is said about Christians and Christianity is that what I mentioned earlier about conversions and being a threat and such, but it's taken on other themes. So, for example, in the late 1990s, this threat when the violence against Christians started escalating, this threat took the form of uh, Sonia Gandhi being the uh, president of the Congress party. So she was an Italian-born Catholic woman. So there was a lot of concern saying, as a Christian, she's going to start supporting Christians. And at the same time, in the, in the turn of the millennium, there were a lot of missionary movements in the country saying, we're going to convert India by 2000. Uh, we're going to have, it was called... Uh, different things, but we are going to have this become a Christian nation. So this fed into those anxieties. So uh, I argue that the basis of this was very solidly placed in the Hindu nationalist writings, but it's brought about and refreshed every once in a while to bring about the ideas. So, uh, for example, in early in the late 1990s, there was a spell of violence in the Dungs district in Kandamal in um, Gujarat. My apologies, and. After this, the uh, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who was a prime minister from the BJP at the time, he went there 
And he started off saying, let's have a national debate on conversions. So it's a question that when you can bring it up, when you can, again, elevate that risk of the other, you do that because it's already there in your arsenal. And finally, we've spoken about this idea of home, both for the minority and the majority, and how an important question that is uh, in the piece that you've published. Increasingly, are minorities in India asking, is this a place we can call home? And how critical are the next kind of five years to being able to understand and answer that question? Before I move on, I do want to actually stress that this is an ideology and an ideology has followers and has supporters. This is not necessarily a Hindu Christian conflict. I think some scholars have made uh, that mistake of trying to say that this will become inevitable, that violence will become inevitable. It is really a question of how much the other side that doesn't necessarily believe that Hindu nationalism uh, represents them speaks out. So you asked the question earlier, James, about uh, what is the bulwark for that? And I think that's where it's important for anybody, whether you're Hindu, Muslim or Christian, if you don't believe in the Hindutva ideology, is to stand up and speak out. And this is, again, is is happening. And it's very great to see, uh, in, including when the Citizenship Amendment Act was passed and the protests that went there. But the coronavirus did put a stop to that. But there is a form of resistance. And that is what has gotten this country to where it is. Uh, and that needs to continue to act as sort of a bulwark against this. But so, for example, even under COVID, um, two reports came out from Christian research organizations uh, from the Evangelical Fellowship of India. They said there were 135 cases against Christians until June this year. And this was largely during the lockdown. Another group called Persecution Relief said there were 293 cases of anti-Christian hate crimes uh, compared to 208 incidents during the same period from last year. So... There is an increase in violence. It's almost daily instances uh, now. But the bulwark is important. The bulwark of civil society and a lot of us rallying through writings and speeches and protests is an important notion to say that we affirm the secular values of this country and that is what we are fighting for. And we like to finish the podcast on a positive note. And one of the things you mentioned there was the majority, the Hindu majority, and, and many people in the Hindu community standing up for minority community rights, whether that's Muslim populations, or, or in this case, Christian. And one of the people you feature on the podcast is a Hindu woman who spoke up for uh, her Christian neighbours. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So this woman's story is, is phenomenal. And I think it tells, it motivates all of us or can inspire all of us to say we can do what we can in our own ways. Um, so when the writers were coming in, uh, she had good connections with uh, the women living in the nunnery, the nuns. Uh, this woman had seven saris that she owned. Uh, when she saw the writers coming in, she asked all the sisters to come into her house, dress them up in saris and position them in different parts of the village to try to hide them. And when the writers came, because there was a big cross on where the nunnery was, uh, they basically went to this woman and said, where is, where are the nuns? And she said, I don't know where they are. And in effect, that is her way of standing up saying, this is not uh, right. This is not what is done. We are all brothers and sisters. And that's what she said to me. She said, we are all brothers and sisters, uh, which really stuck with me uh, too. This is by no means a problem only in India right now. Secularism and tolerance is taking a hit around the world. It Again, it inspires all of us to do our own parts in whatever way we can. 
uh, whether it's academics uh, through our writings and our teaching, whether it's activists through the advocacy, uh, whether it's any of us just trying to make small steps, uh, this is how we should do it. And this is why we should keep writing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, James. You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.